You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Uh, the reason I'm running late is I uh, spilled coffee in the kitchen. Uh, uh, yeah. And it was one of these epic spills where it was like all over the counter and all over the floor. And it was after I already made it. So there's like cream uh, in there, which I don't even normally put cream uh, in my coffee. But of course, I did it this time. And it uh, just brings up the fundamental problem of coffee. And that is you need coffee in order to be able to successfully make coffee. And it's one of the first world problems that this is daily challenges in the life of Thomas Umstead. Yeah, it is uh it is extremely ironic. So what I try to do is just leave a little bit uh make make enough so that there's enough for like half a cup or three quarters of a cup for the next morning. And then I used to be like total coffee snob, I couldn't drink anything but perfectly fresh coffee, but I have uh my I guess my taste buds have degraded with age and or maybe I'm just that desperate for coffee. Maybe that maybe that's what it really is. And so now what I try to do is get that three quarters of a cup of coffee, pop it in the microwave and drink that while I'm making the other cup of coffee. And uh, it seems to help my morning flow better. Pro tips. I can understand the appeal of Keurig. I don't, we have a Keurig, but we almost never use it because it's so expensive. I mean, you're talking almost Starbucks levels of cost for using a Keurig, even when you're buying your pods cheap. Uh, But I totally get the appeal of like insert pod, push glowing button, drink coffee. (laughs) Like it's very, very simple. And yet for what you're paying per ounce for coffee with Keurig, you could be buying $30 a pound coffee, like Hawaiian super premium coffee, and it's still cheaper than drinking Keurig pods. Uh, But you actually have to brew it in a machine. You know, I'll tell you, we had a Keurig. Uh, My wife actually won it in some contest or another like this big coffee basket that came with a Keurig. And I was like, oh, cool, a Keurig. And uh, we brought it home. We got it all set up. We put away the old-fashioned the old fashioned, uh, drip coffee maker. And uh, we got this thing out. And two things I noticed. One, like you already mentioned, it's ridiculously expensive. And two uh, is the fact that I just don't think the to- coffee tastes as good. You know, I was trying all kinds of them, and I just think it's better when you produce it in a big metal carafe like I do in mass. I think it just tastes better that way. Back when I was a kid, we made coffee in big carafes, and it tasted better. You kids nowadays with your current pods have no respect. I resent being called old, Thomas. I resent the implication. (laughs) Keurig... You have to remember, was designed for uh, European coffee drinkers. And so uh, when Americans go to a Keurig machine, they almost always select one of the largest mug options because we like to drink our coffee from very big mugs. And the reality is when you do that with a Keurig, you get a very watery cup of coffee. The Keurig pod itself is designed to make like either the middle size or even one down or even the smallest one. It's for making almost a shot of espresso. And when you make that big mug and you're pouring a big mug's worth of coffee through that tiny bit of coffee grounds, you end up with a very watery coffee, which I will say for a lot of Americans, this is one of the fascinating things uh, about surveying people and why it's so useless often at determining people's preferences. If you survey Americans, like 80% of Americans are going to say that they prefer a strong, bold brew of coffee. 
But if you actually give them options and if you measure it in a more objective way, you're going to find that what they actually prefer is weak, watery coffee <laughs> that they to themselves tell themselves is strong, bitter coffee. <clears throat> Now, my wife is a, an actual exception to this. When she makes coffee, she makes it super strong. She uses probably twice. So normally put like one scoop of coffee for every, um, quote cup, unquote of, um, water, you know, like coffee cups. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, two yeah. The, 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 the water coffee, the, the coffee bean water ratio. I'm be very familiar with this. Right. I'm a, I'm a practitioner. Okay, so anyway, she uses twice the recommended coffee <laughs> and makes what my grandmother calls ink. And she actually likes a bold, bitter brew. She's in that 20%, the rare 20% that actually likes their coffee very strong. She would fit right in in Finland or in Norway or in these other parts of the world where they drink very bitter coffee. But uh, it's a form of coffee drinking that is going extinct, kind of like the middle child in America. I don't know if you saw the story. Um, but with the shrinking of American families, the middle child is going extinct. And Adam Sturbar, Sturdenberg, uh, who wrote this article for The Cut, is making the case that this is really bad because this is the one time in American history when we desperately need middle children. So middle children are the peacemakers. And right now we have, you know, faction one the oldest children and we have faction two, the youngest children and they're at war with each other. And there we are the uh, peacemakers of the world are a dying breed. And I can say as the oldest child, uh, I'm not necessarily uh, the best peacemaker. Right, where are you in your birth order? I am the oldest child. And for a long, long time, I was the only child. So I was the everything child. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I have absolutely no concept of this except for my own children and um, I cannot say I have four kids and I can't say that observing them that the middle two are necessarily peacemakers. Uh, my daughter's a peacemaker and she's a middle child. But, you know, I don't yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It seems I, I didn't I didn't read the article thoroughly. You sent it to me and I did uh, skim through it. But um, it seems like so much armchair sociology to me. I mean, I mean, we're I'm, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Nicholas Nassim Taleb, and uh, you know the fooled by randomness and seeing patterns where none exist or uh, uh, explaining correlation as causation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this to me seems like one of those things that maybe he's just trying to write an interesting article, um, and you know playing on the pop culture idea that uh, the middle child is, is a peacemaker. But ultimately, is this a real thing? I don't know. I didn't really, it's hard to conduct a, a, a legitimate scientific study on this. I think it's just a lot of armchair sociology. I, I don't know if I put a lot of stock into it. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I will say I have heard that birth order doesn't actually affect your personality outside of the context of your family. Uh, so for people who are around their families a lot, birth order does have an impact on their you know, personality, but personality is not fixed. There's this belief that somebody is a certain kind of personality and you give them these four Myers-Briggs letters, which by the way, also is not backed up by science. Uh, I've heard Myers-Briggs described as the Christian horoscope <laughs> where <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, vague enough for it comply to apply to anyone. And once you get your letters, you have a box and you're able to put your own feelings into a context. Um, but 
it's not what actual professional psychologists use. They don't use that. And birth order is the same thing. It's a pop psychology that's not actually supportable with uh, real science. And part of the reason, and I was uh, listening to somebody who's, uh, I think it was in the book that we read on Persuasion, Cialdini's book, where he was talking about how he got into palm reading. And oh, how yeah, he, as, a, as a party trick, yeah. As a party trick. And he'd read somebody's palms, and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's so accurate. And then he would read it with a totally different reading later in the party because he was getting drunk or bored or whatever. And it was the opposite reading of what he'd given the person at the beginning of the party. And like, oh, my gosh, that's so accurate. So at the first time, they said, you're a very you know, deliberate um, person who thinks before jumping. And then later he's like, you know, you make quick decisions and you uh, are, you know, quick, you know, you're whatever the opposite of that. And the reality is, is that to confirm something like that, somebody just looks for an instance of when was there a time when I made a, a considered decision? And like, oh yeah, I can think of a time when I thought through the ramifications of a decision. So I must be that kind of person. And then later you get the palm reading. that says you make deliberate rash decisions. And so you look for what's it's called a confirmation bias you look in your memory have i done that and you're like oh yes here's an instance of me you know jumping really quick and not letting the grass grow beneath my feet or whatever and so both of those readings feel accurate because of uh, a cognitive bias that all of us humans have and it's really easy to take these cognitive biases and apply them to whole personalities where it's like oh you're acting that way because you're the oldest child disregarding all the times when they acted in a way that was not consistent with being an oldest child and once you add a little bit of scientific rigor a lot of this fun pop psychology goes away but it really does make science far less uh, interesting, less uh, psychology, far less interesting. Cause it's really nice to be able to put somebody in a box and it's like, Oh, well, you're acting that way because you're ENFP and all, all you ENFPs are the same to me. <laughs> yeah. And that's that, that is so true. I think, uh, whether it's astrology or Myers Briggs, human beings are always going to be fascinated. And you, you hit the nail on the head with Cialdini in the palm reading is and as as a behavioral psychologist he was able to play into all of these uh imperfections in the human brain that we go back and we look at, at specific specific examples that prove the point instead of what you know Nassim Taleb would uh uh would regard as pop poparian uh, falsification theory which is um instead of trying to prove it right you try to prove it wrong which is uh, in his opinion, I would tend to agree a more rigorous way uh, for the human brain to react, but it's the it's the exact opposite in so many ways. Unless it's a unless it's something that contradicts with something we believe, in which case we do the opposite. We go back and we look for specific instances would prove it wrong. So um, yes, we 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 tend to want to swim down the same stream we're already in, and swimming upstream is a very difficult thing to do. Um, yeah, that's why that's why I have a hard time in believing the whole middle child thing, and uh, like you said, it, it's also why I have a hard time dealing or believing in the whole. Uh, and I I get into it too. You know, I'm I'm a victim. I'm a I'm a I'm a patsy. Uh, I get I get fascinated by that stuff too, just because it's so interesting to read about. But when I really really think hard about it and 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 try to be intellectually honest with myself, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um. I think from what I have observed in uh, my lessons of humanities in my, in my past careers is that people are very fluid in their personalities. Everybody has facets. 
they'll present one facet of themselves to this group and they'll present another facet of themselves to another group. And I use myself uh, to, uh, as an example of that, very, very largely, you know, when I go and often I'm a, I'm a Marine reservist. When I go play with my Marines, people that, uh, you know, I go to church with or that uh, I'm in Boy Scouts with might be a little bit surprised how I react with I'm a bunch of hardcore boys uh, and, and girls for that matter. So it's we, we all have these facets of personality and it's very contextual. So if we are in a situation where uh, we are the follower, we're going to act more like a follower. If we're in a situation where we're the more the leader, we're going to act more like a leader. And people tend to be more flexible in their personalities than than they are just one dimensional, which I find more fascinating than anything at all. That's right. Where the context controls uh, your personality. I will say when I am in a debate room, my personality is very different than when I am at church. And it's not because I'm trying to be a different person. I'm, you know, I'm the same person, but in the debate room, I am basically excluding the emotional side of my personality and leaning entirely on rationality and reason and not really caring what's right and wrong, but comparing what wins, right? Because in debate, you have to take both sides of the argument. So you have to kind of take a step back and have a, you know, you can't be as invested. Whereas when I'm at church, I am like the whole person I'd like to think where I'm very invested in right and wrong. And I'm not just wanting to think rationally, but I'm also wanting to think, you know, emotionally and experience the church context emotionally. Whereas when I am, you know, on a date with my wife, I, I'm mostly turning off the rational part of my brain. I'm not trying to like beat her in a debate as we're having a discussion across the, the dinner table, right? I'm, I'm most, mostly experiencing that in an emotional way. And the Thomas of those three contexts is a very different Thomas. And it's the same Thomas. I'm just leaning in on one part of my personality or leaning in on another. And I will say some people are more um, adaptable than others, right? Some, some people have to always be in command in every single context they're in. Whereas other people can take leadership in one context and then they go home and they take a different, you know, they maybe have more leadership at home or they have less leadership at home uh, or, you know, they have a, a position of authority at Boy Scout camp, <clears throat> but they don't at school or whatever. And some people are, are more adaptable in that. Although back to this um, article, I do want to say that there is some science here that I do want to discuss. And that is that uh, according to a study by the Pew Research uh, Center, the average American mother is having fewer children now than in the 70s. And they give specific numbers, uh, but I don't think that this is particularly controversial. A lot of women in the 70s had four more kids. Now that's very rare unless they homeschool. <laughs> uh, but homeschooling is very rare. And I do think that the shrinking of families has an effect on our personality as a country. And uh, I think a better example of this is uh, the Dragon Children of China. Uh, so, oh, yes. so China dragon Children and Tiger Mothers, right? That's right. So we were like, what's a dragon child? So I want you to just imagine the, the cultural result of the one child policy. So when you're born today in China, you are an only child, which means both of your parents are focusing all of their attention on you. But you know what? Both of your parents were only child too. So you have four 
grandparents who are focusing all of their attention on you. And let's say you have your grandparents are only children. And so you have your great grandparents. Let's say half of them are still alive. So you have, what are we at now? Four great grandparents. So we have uh, four great grandparents, four grandparents and two parents. That is 10 people who are focusing entirely on you. Is this going to make you a humble servant person who is able to get along well, or is this going to turn you into a spoiled brat? <laughs> so the temptation is, is that it turns you into a spoiled brat. And the, the, what they call these children in China is uh, dragon children. Now, this doesn't mean that all children in China are spoiled brats, uh, but it, there is a phenomenon. I was talking with a Chinese friend of mine of marriages that only last for a month. And this is like a a common thing and they have a term for it. And I don't remember what the term is, but when you have a child that's used to always getting their way, marrying another child who's used to always getting their way when they're married and they're realizing that they're actually having to like consider the desires of somebody else. It's like the shock to their system and they can't handle it because they've gotten rid of the concept of siblings, right? Like siblings squabbling over limited resources is actually learning a useful social skill that will serve them well later on in life. And when you take that away from generations of people, they they uh, have to learn those skills some other way, and that can be very difficult. Yeah, uh, it, it's an interesting thought, and it's not something I've really read that much on. Uh, you know, my my knowledge of Chinese culture uh, in the in the one child policy. A, you, you know, there's, there's a couple different aspects of this. One you mentioned earlier about uh, the decreasing number of children. Um, and I think if I recall correctly, and I'm going off the top of my head here, I don't have a source to cite. If I recall correctly, that is, uh, directly correlated with, um, uh, with your economic status. So people of higher economic status are, and higher education status for that matter, are having less children than the lower classes, if, uh, if I, if I'm remembering this, uh, correctly. So, yeah, so I mean that's that's gonna have um that's gonna have an interesting side effect. A, are we gonna end up like Russia, where our birth rate is causing our population to decline? In the short term, no, because I think there's still so many people that want in here, uh, in, here being the United States, that I think you know an outside population influx is still is still going to keep our our population numbers booming, and as long as our economy remains strong, as long as we're a very wealthy nation, that's going to remain true. So uh, I don't think we'll decline. However, you know the quote unquote Native Americans, people that were born here, um, they they're going to. And this is kind of a historical aspect of our nation, too, just because we are a nation of immigrants. They are going to more and more, as the birth rate decreases, become more and more of a minority. So I think there's an interesting sociological aspect there just to kind of break it apart. And then going back to what you're saying about dragon children, um, my 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 experience with Chinese culture is very limited in uh, terms of what I read and then what I experienced very tangentially at university. And my experience uh, of a Chinese culture is of a people who are very goal-oriented, who work very hard, and who, contrary to American culture, especially student culture, who holds the student-athlete up uh, head and shoulders and and values their, their contributions of athleticism 
um, more than uh, intellectualism. Chinese culture is the opposite from what I understand, which is the nerds in China are the popular kids and the athletes don't hold quite the social status. So I don't know how that plays, if it does, into the one-child policy. Maybe there's... uh, Maybe there's a, 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 a contrapoint to what you were saying as far as spoiled brats. Maybe having so much attention focused on you by a culture that is a culture of tiger parents could be having the opposite effect on a lot of people, depending on you know where you grow up in China and what their, their microcultural uh, uh, issues are. But you know, maybe, maybe being a, a nation of one-child parents is breeding a people um, that are hyper focused just because every, all eyes are constantly on them. I, as an only child for a number of years, I know exactly what that feels like because there was no getting away from anything. I had a lot of stuff because I was an only child uh, and I was spoiled that way. But at the same time, there was no blaming a brother or a sister. If something went wrong, if something went wrong, you know, I better have my case solid tight because all eyes were on me. So I, I don't know if you, I, I made two points there. I don't know which one you want to explore, but uh, I think it's your turn to talk now, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a good point of, you know, growing up as an older child isn't all roses. I imagine if you grew up in a big family, it seems all roses. And you grow up as an older child, you're like, no, growing up in a fa- big family seems all roses. But I, while you're talking, I was like, I wonder what the actual birth rate is in the United States. And uh, for some comparison, I looked up the birth rate of Russia because we've been hating on Russia for having this really low birth rate. So the birth rate in Russia right now is 1.75 births per woman. Now, you need 2 point something births per woman to maintain the same um, population. And what that point is depends on uh, life expectancy and like how healthy your uh, country is. So you're like really poor, impoverished country and people are dying of sicknesses all the time. It needs to be more like 2.5, 2.6 potentially. Whereas if people are pretty healthy and they live a long time and you have uh, low infant mortality, it's closer to 2.1. Uh, but whatever it is, 1.75 is not at a replacement rate. So the birth rate for America, because you know, we're so much better than Russia is 1.84%. Uh, 1.84 babies per woman. Sorry. Uh, so for some comparison, both of those numbers are lower than two, which means even if every single child born goes on or every single woman born, every single baby girl born goes on to have 1.84 children herself, we are still shrinking uh, in terms of population. But you're like, but wait, isn't America's population going up every year? And it's like, yes, it is, because we do something that the Russians don't do very well, and that is we're really good at taking in immigrants from around the world, uh, from places that are still having babies, and we are um, fortifying our population with these immigrants. If we were not taking in immigrants, which I realize people don't like the idea of taking in immigrants, especially if they don't go through the super restrictive uh, immigration system that really does limit the number of people coming in. If we weren't having a flood of uh, undocumented illegal immigrants coming over, our population would be shrinking because we're not replacing our population. 1.84 babies per woman is not enough to replace your population, even under perfect circumstances. Uh, so I, I had no idea it had gotten that low. And when I was Googling this, all of the articles were like, historic lows, what is the re- repercussions of this on the United States in the long term? And, you know, they're all talking about it in terms of um, ethnic 
outcomes. But I think a much more, I'm not too, I don't care too much about the ethnic ramifications of this, but I do care about the economic ramifications, right? You have to have at least be replacing your population or suddenly like every industry is hurting, right? What happens to real estate when there's fewer people in a generation than in the previous generation, all the real estate becomes less valuable. It's very scary. Yeah, uh, that is, I, I agree with you. I, it's not so much the ethnic component, but I am personally in the United States, like I said, not worried about that simply because as long as our economic situation remains better than our neighbors, we are going to have, and as long as you know, we're still that, that, that city on a hill, we're going to have that influx of people who want to come here. So no matter what the rhetoric of Donald Trump is, no matter what the rhetoric of uh, our, our, our neighboring or just the international community is against the United States of America at any one point in time, it is still a very desirable place to be and people will still uh, make great sacrifices to come here. So as long as we got that going for us, I'm not too totally worried about it. And the great thing about the United States of America is as a nation of immigrants, um, we we bring all kinds in, bring us your, your sick, hungry, dire, tired, poor, dirty, however it goes. I can't remember the exact phrase. But and out of that, the cream will rise to the top and we'll get some fantastic individuals uh, who just have the, the, the will to get up, lift themselves up by their bootstraps and, and do wonderful things. And that's the magic of our nation. Whereas uh, conversely, Russia is a very closed system nation. Uh, they are very, and when you talk about racism, you know, you want to go, you want to talk about a racist nation, you go to Russia. They're very racist. They're very insular. Um, uh, and they, they don't really want immigrants, uh, the way that, uh, we want immigrants. So I, I'm not overly concerned with, uh, with our, with our low birth rate because I think the rest of the world will make up for it. And, uh, the greatness that is, the free market will encourage those extra people to come over here and do great things. And something that America does do better than any other country is taking in immigrants uh, and turning immigrants into Americans. And we've and we do it just as well now as we ever have. And people who are afraid that immigrants are going to ruin American culture, and there is definitely a fear of that. They're like, oh, these dirty Irish are coming in here with their Catholicism, and they're going to ruin American culture. Um, I realize that's a bit of a dated example, but uh, it was one that was touted for a hundred years. And the people who tout that uh, have a saddeningly low belief in the power of American culture. <laughs> so American culture is very, very powerful. The, it's it's so powerful that it's influencing the cultures all over the world. When you go to Korea and you listen to pop music, what is the pop music like? Did, did it emerge on its own that it's like this unique kind of Korean pop music? No, it's a derivative of American pop music. <laughs> and they were, you know, Gangnam Style, while it's Korean, it's also very American. And it was inspired by our culture. And our culture is more powerful than these other cultures. And when people come here, they become American. Yes, they bring part of their culture and we steal the best words from their language and we steal the best elements of their culture and we incorporate it into our culture. But what happens is that it makes the Borg of American culture even more powerful as we assimilate these uh, immigrants into America. And you'd be like, oh, well, they're not assimilating. They're still speaking Spanish. And I'm like... Just take a deep breath. 
Give it a couple generations. It took the Germans three generations in Texas to stop speaking German. We had German language. <laughs> they still do in some parts of, of Texas. They had German newspapers. They had German schools. Uh, some of the churches and parts of Texas are still, you know, sing uh, their hymns in, in German. But you know what? They all speak English now. And the of, of all of the statistics I've seen, the immigrants coming from Spanish-speaking parts of the world are um, acquiring English at the same rate. And it takes about three generations for English to be fully adopted. But that is what's happening. English is being fully adopted. And so I I think that this is our competitive advantage as a country and we need to really lean into it. And this is probably my biggest break um, with kind of Trump's rhetoric is that he sees immigration as this threat to America. It's like, Oh, if we let these immigrants in, they're rapists and drug dealers and they're going to ruin America. And when I look at the statistics, like 1.84 births per woman, I, I see these immigrants is our salvation. I see them in a totally different light. It's like we desperately need these people uh, to work our fields and our farms because we are not having enough babies uh, to do it ourselves. Well, I mean, it's just like Rome, right? We're both students of the history of Rome and there, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm simultaneously fascinated and worried about this because I think I find, and maybe this is my confirmation bias at work, Thomas, you can tell me, I find so many similarities between the history of Rome and our nation, which, like I said, is simultaneously worrisome and fascinating. But Rome for so long, um, it, it, it amplified its own nation, by it, its, its own empire by... Uh, co-opting the cultures of the peoples they conquered. And United States of America doesn't uh, conquer nations anymore, theoretically. Until we need um, to do it however, again. However, we still do bring in... <laughs> until we need to. Uh, but however, we, we still bring in people and we still co-opt cultures. I think, you know, I don't want to go too far down this little rabbit hole, but the thing that drives me nuts about social justice warriors and uh, the theory of uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, Thomas? Um, uh, uh, um, co-opting culture. What's the what's cultural the word? assimilation? The cultural I'm, appropriation. Totally cultural cultural appropriation. I don't know why I couldn't think of it just then, but yes, cultural appropriation. It, it drives me nuts. Yes, cultural appropriation is a thing, and uh, it's it's actually a very good thing. Uh, because what what that's saying is that there's aspects of your culture that are so awesome that people want to take that and emulate it and make it make it their own. And this uh, this idea that you know unless you're of that culture you can't do that thing, you know it makes me it makes me very upset because now I'm thinking to myself that's that's the exact opposite of what we, we as Americans believe. Whether you're Czech, German, Irish, Dutch, um, African, Australian. Uh, Chinese, Asian, whatever it is, you come over here, you bring aspects of your culture and all of us over here say, Hey, that's really great. And we're going to, we're going to put a little bit of a spin on it and make that, make that American and make it ours. And this big melting pot is what makes American great. So, um, I believe, like you said, I believe that's our strength. And, uh, that whole, uh, cultural appropriation thing just makes me nuts because, you know, what's the, what's the highest form of flattery, but imitation. So, that's just my two cents. Uh, Thomas, I don't know if you have anything to say about that uh, before we wrap it up. 
Uh, well, one thing I do would like to say is that this episode is brought to you by Tom Umstadt's CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Find out how you can get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com. And uh, I agree. I realize that uh, back to, okay, and sponsor. Uh, I agree about the melting pot. I realize that that's politically incorrect. We're not supposed to say melting pot anymore. We're supposed to say salad bowl because uh, we want people to be able to continue to express their unique culture. Uh, but I think that uh, the salad bowl political correct people don't understand um, how melting pots work <laughs> and and how ultimately the synthesis of different cultures is what's so cool. So jazz is a synthesis of different cultures from different continents. Uh, Hip hop is the synthesis of different cultures and different continents. When you watch Americans compete at the Olympics, right? Like different countries are really good at different sports, right? Like some countries are really good at some sports. Some countries are really good at other sports, right? Like um, Norway tends to dominate in certain, you know, sports that involve skiing down hills, uh, right? They really focus on that. America is able to compete at all of the sports. <laughs> and it's because we have people from all of the countries. And it's uh, and they have, you know, because it takes a long time to get good at a sport. Uh, it takes, you know, a long time to learn and have that skills. And we bring in people who have those skills and can teach. Uh, and we also sometimes just hire straight the coaches. Like we want to get better at gymnastics. We hire a Russian gymnastics coach to come to America. So I realize that that, in a sense, is using our money. Uh, but still it's, it's great. And I love, I love America and I love to see Americans coming together. And I, I, the perfect picture of this, uh, we were recently at the beach. It was actually where we were recording our live episodes. And if you walk down the beach on North Padre Island, you see people, uh, Texans of all different walks of life and of all different ethnicities enjoying the beach together and enjoying the beach separately. So you're walking by and there's a truck playing country music and then there's a car playing hip hop music and there's a truck playing Tejano music and it they're at peace with each other. <laughs> they're enjoying the beach together and they're they're playing the music that represents their specific culture and it was and there wasn't cops all over like making sure people got along. People were getting along on their own. They weren't needing a lot of government involvement. There was a little bit of government involvement. You had to pay some money to get to the beach and the government would come and clean up the trash every once in a while, but it was very minimal. And it's like, this is a perfect microcosm of what is so amazing about America. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm so thankful to, to be here and to be a Texan and where we can be different, but we can also be the same and we can live at peace with each other. It almost makes me think that we should end this show with a playing of the national anthem because I'm getting a tear in my eye and I'm feeling very patriotic. <laughs> we want to know what you think, folks. Uh, we will play the national anthem for you today, but uh, you know, maybe you can go and, and feel patriotic on your own time. Uh, drop us a line, shoot us an email, uh, do whatever you need to do to reach out to us and let us know what you think. We'd really like to hear and uh, pose us some questions by all means. You know, say, hey, Thomas, Dustin, y'all should talk about this because y'all are two intelligent, interesting people, and we want to know what you think. So. Thomas, I want to wish you a good day. And all of you out there, I want to say have a great day. And this is Liberty Buzz.